0: Before we begin the sermon, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> before we begin the sermon, <laughs> if I remember, I might just in the middle of the sermon. But if uh, we're just going to get to the sermon now, because I don't remember what I was going to say. All right. This phrase, "the day of the Lord," it is one of those phrases where you think, ah, talking about the end times, right? We just read out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, and I want to get to that phrase in just a bit, but before we do so, I believe it has a lot to do with something that we are familiar with, and that is this thing called Independence Day. This is a map that shows, among other national holidays that are very important to each country, that green area are countries because of, I guess, colonial times, with, whether it's U.S. or uh, England and what have you, where a lot of countries got independence, even the Soviet Union. And so this green area shows so many countries, a majority of the globe, that has one form of another experienced independence from another country. That's pretty significant. For many countries, it is such a loyal and important historical marker in their history that they dedicate a day in remembrance, and we have our own, right? Although today, I bet if we were to poll our younger children, many don't have any idea what Independence Day is all about. But there was a time in which it was extremely important as far as patriotism in our country when we look at our reference to Independence Day or July 4th. So we've got this thing that we have reference to, and, and typically, if we were to use language to personify this day, we would have red, white, and blue, or we would have you know ice cream, apple pie, or, or, or whether uh, shave ice. Or I don't know what we all do traditionally from region to region within this country, but we would associate those things, right? It may be baseball, and we use references to words that may not be, literally applicable to those things, but it gives us a general picture about Independence Day. In fact, we use this kind of language a lot when we're referring to a number of things. If I said 9-11, automatically a number of years, particularly if you're older, it has reference to not just uh, September 11th, but what took place on that day in this country. Just saying that, if we go to other places in the world... Detached from our history, 9-11 means nothing. And even when we use um, poetic language to reference a major event, we get the picture, right? And so we, we use words and things. In fact, in our own song, I was trying to ask Julie, I said, what songs you know, are modern songs that we know that uses high-level imagery um, to get across a message that we would never ever take literally. And so I was coming up with songs and I don't know songs very well. In fact, ask my kids. I am the worst person when it comes to music, entertainment, and what have you. But, Karen Carpenter came to my mind. <laughs> and those of you who are younger, mean Karen Carpenter means nothing to you, but hear some of these words. and I'm not gonna sing the song, although I have intention at times to, in my head, sing it, so. Um, one of the songs is on top of the world. Right. I'm on top of the world looking down on creation and and she's talking about at one point in the song such a feeling coming over me and the skies are blue. I got the sun in my eye. Things like that. She's feeling really good about life that she's on top of the world and yet literally she is not on top of the world. If you want to look at it from one vantage point. And there's no way a sun could get in someone's eye. Right kids. Not possible. It's too hot a little too big. But we get the imagery and we understand it. So when it comes to a phrase like the day of the Lord, we've got to understand that the Jews had their own day and they used this type of imagery language to get across this kind of day. And if we're not careful, all we do is apply it to one area that we read in Scripture, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and we apply it to just, boom, this one day. Whereas for the Jews, it was a very important, significant, historical day of their past that was being used in language from the past to talk about something in the future. And something in the future does not necessarily have to only mean this thing that's very, very far down the road in our minds at the end of all time. All right, so I want you to go back because again, when we're doing our our Bible reading and Bible studies, this will be helpful because this is used particularly as we get into the minor prophets. Right, this word and this phrase is going to be very significant. In fact, it's used 30 times in the Bible, 25 of them right in um, the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, and including the minor prophets. And so, I want us to, to kind of get some historical backdrop to this phrase, day of the Lord. And then I want us to kind of go from there and see what application has for us, because naturally we don't live under the old covenant, so how can this benefit us? And so I want to see how that does. All right, so when we look at the history of the Jews, and one of the things we've just done is we've actually finished our study in Exodus, that we can remember a very special day. In fact, a lot of the Lord's Supper that we partake of is from that special day. That was remembered. It was the Passover, right? God used during this time his own people who are being oppressed by the Egyptians. They're in such great bondage that they're crying out to God. And as a result, then, God warns Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would repent and let his people go and worship him, right? But Pharaoh doesn't. And so, with these warnings, God sends plagues to Egypt and through these plagues I mean it is as if the world is coming to an end for Egypt it is that bad so significant in their history that Egypt could never really truly recover uh, in the way that we'll see them in the future Um, and we can look at their future when they try to come back and become a, a big nation again but uh, they never really recovered fully in the way that they had been known. But anyway, what we see is God wanting them to stop oppressing his people, right? You also see, as a result of, of Pharaoh's uh, rebellion and hardness of heart, that God is going to make a new day for Israel where he's going to bring judgment upon this cruel nation who's oppressing his people and bring independence. For his children, okay. Keep this in mind. There's a lot more beyond this. We can actually go back to the Book of Genesis, um, even with the Tower of Babel. But I just want to give us a, something that we can kind of put something that is familiar to us on, and and see this Passover as an Independence Day for the Israelites. In fact, when you read from Exodus 12 and 13, he says, "This is your new beginning." Particularly as you get into chapter uh, 14, this is a new day for this new fledgling or babe nation called Israel. So we read that in Exodus 12. We can see it over here. In fact, just read a couple of these passages with me and we get this picture of this particular day and the concept being built around this. So look at Exodus chapter 12. And we start here in uh, verse 13. It says... Make sure I'm in the right place for you. Yeah. Yeah. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you as to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he goes on with that concept, and he continues with that, and he says, For the Lord will pass through to you, in verse 23, to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So this is what's going to take place. He's going to strike every, every house that does not have this blood that's put over. The destroyer will. And so with that, he goes on and, and talks more of the, of the significance of this. And he says then in verse 29, It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. And so Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians... And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house, there was not one dead. Going on to chapter 13. He goes in verses 11 through 13 and says this. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have um, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck, and the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So he's talking about here's what's gonna take place on this day. You're gonna redeem all the firstborn because I, I've saved you while I brought judgment upon Pharaoh. Look at what happens on this great day when Israel is being redeemed, while this nation who had oppressed them is being judged. We move on to chapter 14. In chapter 14, look at what it says here. Verse 30. We fast forward, right? They have left Pharaoh. They have gone and made their way up to a certain point where they are now at the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is coming strong after them after they had let them go. They want them to return. They're going to cry out to God. And God says, I want you to watch what I'm going to do. Verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and thus Israel saw a great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. One more time, I want to slow down on the reading now in verse 30. The Lord saved Israel that day. Significant day. Huge So important that theology is going to actually surround this day. And that's where we get this phrase that right now seems ambiguous but becomes more important. Particularly when you take a lot of the imagery that is going to be in future literature. Particularly when we look at these minor prophets and they have a lot of imagery, right, in their writings. And you'll see a lot of similarity between these plagues that struck Egypt. And a lot of the actual picture of salvation. In fact, you go further into this concept of the day of the Lord, and you're going to see a lot of God's wrath in the form of natural disasters, amazing military defeat, uh, calamities, all kinds of things that the imagery will bring these types of events to the surface in their writings at the same time where God pours out his wrath, he also pours out his blessing. So you're going to see as, as he judges this oppressive people, Egypt, right? He blesses the oppressed people, Israel in this case. And so we read of this going on. In fact, in chapter 14, now in verse 13, look at what he, what he says. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And, of course, we read verse 30 of what he had actually done. So all this is going to take place. And then he goes on to say, I want you to remember this day, this Passover, and how that Passover is tied not only to the blood of, of the lamb, but the salvation of Israel that God had provided for them just as they were crossing into the Red Sea. All, this all comes together as one main event this day. And so in chapter 15, you may not have read chapter 15 much. It may not mean much to you, but it meant so very much to the Israelites. So much so that it's like a national anthem, if you will. Kind of like when, I don't know, we might have some Star Spangled Banner and we have things along those lines over the night as we have been battling in our history, right, in the form of independence from the quote-unquote motherland. That's what you're seeing here. In this case, look at the first few words of the song of Moses, and the same thing is on the song of Miriam. Hers is a lot shorter. It's basically the first couple of verses of what we can read here in chapter 15. It says, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying... I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam's song, same thing. He goes on and says, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, or Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he he has cast into the sea. He chosen captains, or his chosen captains, are also drowned in the Red Sea, and the depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And he goes on praising God, how strong and mighty the right hand of God is in bringing salvation for His people. So we see that how important this day is when salvation was brought to Israel. And so, while the phrase "the day of the Lord" is not used. The concept is right here. This is the very concept that when you get into Isaiah and Amos and Joel and Zechariah, I mean, uh, you read of all the Old Testament prophets that use this reference, day of the Lord. There has to be a, a, a frame of reference. And this is it. This is the frame of reference. Otherwise, there's nothing in Israel history that would say, I'm really going to give this, this phrase, the day of the Lord... And everyone's going to know what it means. No. There's usually an event that has taken place that is so significant in a person's history that when you say a phrase, you know exactly what it's in reference to. And so that's what we're seeing here, right? It paved the way for its future use of that phrase, day of the Lord. Now, let's fast forward with Israel's history, and then we'll get to see how this phrase is being used. So if you remember... God saves Israel from oppressive Egypt. Egypt behaves very immorally toward the people of God. It's in contrast to the very nature and character of God Himself. All right? In fact, Egypt, through Pharaoh, exalts themselves, as Pharaoh does, as a God Himself. Well, the very thing that happened against Egypt is what God says as a warning to Israel, don't do the same things that were done to you in Egypt. That's what you're reading in in the laws as we get into Deuteronomy, as we look at the history in Joshua and Judges with regard to Israel's history. He's basically saying, I want you to remember how you had been oppressed, and I want you to treat those who are on the fringe, if you will, with justice and mercy and fairness. All right? The problem is, what started out as a wonderful beginning for Israel goes south. In fact, Moses, when you read uh, Deuteronomy chapters twenty-seven through the remainder of the chapter, I mean the re- remainder of the book, he says as much. He says, you know, for all the blessing and cursings, choose life. You're going to forsake God, and plagues are going to come upon you. Think Egypt. And if you still do not listen and you harden your hearts. I'm going to bring judgment against you, and you're going to go in captivity. Right? So we fast forward centuries later, and what we've begun begun to see is the, the leaders of Israel treating their own people the way Egypt treated them. Without going into all the passages, think Solomon for a second. Solomon, for all that he asked God for wisdom, takes thousands, tens of thousands of his own people and sets them up as taskmasters. By the way, that sounds a whole lot like Genesis 11. sounds a whole lot like the book of Exodus when the Egyptians had taskmasters set over them. He had placed such great burdens on his own people. And what you're seeing is the the downfall of the Israelites and how they are being mistreated by their own brethren. So keep that in mind as we get into the very first looks of this phrase. So as we go further into the history, we're now in what's called the divided kingdom era of Israel's history. And during this time, you have in the, on the southern, or Israel and Judah, right? And Israel's side, there's no good king, basically. With Judah, at least it's kind of hit and miss. But Israel just... It just gets worse and worse and worse. And so there's going to be these prophets that come along and tell them, if you don't repent, you're going to go into captivity. And there's going to be a people that you consider to be evil and wicked, and they are. But I'm going to use them to judge you. Right? Because you have behaved in such a manner that is worse than Egypt. So... These nations come along. In fact, Assyria is the first empire of the world that we know of, biblically speaking. Right? You don't have just a city nation. You've got an actual empire. And you're going to see Assyria in reference and Babylon in reference and Egypt in reference later on. Although Egypt, again, is nowhere near as powerful as it had been before. And here's the thing. The prophets start using this phrase, day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is going to be a mindset that the end is coming. For those, those oppressors. And Israel's thinking, all right, remember how God actually saved us in that day? Remember when, when Egypt had, had kind of basically stepped on our necks? And he saved us. He's going to do it again. That's the framework now. And I want us to look at some Bible passages that bring this out. I want you to go to, well, let's start with Amos. Go to Amos chapter 5. And then we'll go back up to Joel. Go to, I was trying to put this in chronological order. So you got Joel and Amos, they're one of the first prophets, and then we get into Isaiah, and then we could have gone into some more, but you'll get the idea by then. Look at uh, Amos chapter 5. So as you go in through um, Joel and Amos and you start reading of these phrases where you're having, well, more and more of this poetic literature. And this poetic literature is bringing out all kinds of of words that just seemed unbelievable. Here's the way he uses this writing. In Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this. There shall be wailing in all streets. They shall um, say in the highways, alas, alas. They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you. Does that sound like the Passover? It should. There's all this wailing going on. And then he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You see, God's people were longing for this day of the Lord to happen again like it did in the days of Egypt. The problem is this day of the Lord is coming against his own people. And this is not some kind of futuristic judgment as far as the end of the world. It's going to be as if it is the end of their world, though. And so Amos goes on talking. Amos is not the typical prophet, right? you got everyone in the city, and here's Amos, a shepherd out in the country. And Amos is coming and saying, listen, God is telling me, here's what's going to happen to you. You need to pay close attention because this day of the Lord that you desire, it's going to be against you. It's going to be against us. It's used this way throughout the book of Amos. Go back to Joel then. And we see in, in, in Joel's writing very similar wording. And again, it's against Israel. Joel is giving the same message that Amos is given. So in Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Joel says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And he goes on in chapter 2 and and 3 and references this day of the Lord again to deal with Israel's sin. Same thing again with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, and you can go on to other passages. Here's the thing, and I don't want it to become an academic exercise. I just want you to know that this phrase is used, and sometimes we only attribute it to this one thing in the future. The way the writers are using it through all the imagery surrounding this phrase, day of the Lord, right? The sun, uh, sun turns into blood or darkness, and I mean, it's like, wow. And, of course, what do we often try to do? Think literally. That's going to happen. Something like that, and It's imagery. Something terrible is about to happen. And this imagery gets blurred eventually. Because what is used against Israel here or down over here against Babylon or against Egypt, and even the phrase itself, while it's not used specifically, will be in reference to Assyria. Right? You might have the day of distress. Right? The the day of judgment or something similar other than just the phrase, day of the Lord. But the concept will still be the same. And it's going to happen to the surrounding nations, whether it's going to be um, Assyria, then Babylon, and then you've got the Greeks, and of course, or the Persians, excuse me, and then the Greeks, and then Romans. You're going to see this concept over and over and over again. Right? This is exactly what Moses warned Israel was going to happen. And again, the writers, knowing all this, And the people of Israel having the history of all this, they know what this phrase means, but now it's against them. But here's another way that this phrase, the day of the Lord, is being referenced. And again, remember I told you that this phrase often brings about judgment on one side and blessing on the other. So remember as I was mentioning Joel to you, in Joel chapter 2, you've got this day of the Lord reference. We just didn't read it. Well... The Apostle Peter picks up on this history, knows how this phrase is used where there is judgment placed upon the oppressor and there is blessing upon the oppressed. Now, go to Acts chapter 2 and read the quotation from Joel the prophet. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 17. Let can get there myself. Again, we'll get away from all this academic in just a little bit. All right. Peter says in verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk. These men who are speaking in these tongues, in these languages. These men are not, or these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. Ah. There's that phrase in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams and on the men and on my men servants and maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved this picture has a lot of similarities to the writings that you can read of the prophets and it has a lot of imagery that would take them all the way back to the days of Egypt when they were saved when the people who called on the name of the Lord had been saved by him and judgment came upon their oppressors. So this pouring out of wrath or pouring out a blessing in the form of his spirit is seen connected to this phrase. That's the thing that I want you to see. So you've got that. And then you've got this final use that, in my mind at least, in studying. You've got the one that we're familiar with. This, and I put it in capital D now. Day of the Lord. Right? Right? And when you look at this phrase, whether it's in Malachi or or in Matthew 24, Matthew 24 doesn't even use the word day of the Lord, as you can read it in 1 Thessalonians. But the imagery is the same in Matthew 24, as you can read in 1 Thessalonians or other passages in the New Testament Scripture. But this poetic language is there, and it begins to blur these momentous events in history of man, particularly as it's tied to Israel, with the main event. You see, the whole purpose of the Bible is to give us a history of who we are, where we've come from, and how we sin against our God. But within this history is a picture of those who call upon God's name and how there are people in this world under the influence of Satan himself, if you will, who is oppressed. And this oppression is going to be dealt with. And that's the picture. So if you go into Matthew chapter 24, and you read when the disciples are asking Jesus about the destruction of the temple, they're asking, you know, when is this day going to come? And if you notice, this is where a lot of gospel preachers, <laughs> looking right at my brother over here. I'm sure he's had to deal with this as, as well. I'm looking at Mark. Uh, where There's Richard, whoever else, pre- preaching. We get into, well, when does that the coming of the destruction of the temple, and when are we talking about the end times, right? In Matthew 24, is it verse 32? Is it verse 36? Is it verse 40? And you guys can go do your own studies on that. And, and there's this blur. We don't know exactly when that is. When does this imagery cross from one event to the main event? And that's on purpose. It's because the picture at times, it's like the end of the world. I'll give you a, for instance, in our own culture, and I was doing a lot of um, uh, video uh, watching with what's going on with North Korea. And then that got me thinking about what took place in the 70s and 80s when you have the the Cuban Missile Crisis in our country. And then you've got this whole thing with the war games build up between the U.S. and Russia. And guess what we were doing? We are drilling in Hawaii, drilling for what happened. I don't know what's going to happen. If you get a nuclear bomb in Hawaii, you don't don't go under the table. You're done for. But we had these drills to prepare for war. It's a scary time, at least in our history. As a kid growing up, I felt scared. That's the way it was presented to us. It's a significant part of our history. And if you look at significant moments like that, they're very uh, very full of imagery because you got all these bombs with a big mushroom cloud and everything. It's very scary looking. And so we had movies and everything, like The Day After and what have you. Those things give us very similar concepts, like our world is coming to an end, right? And for many of us in this country, we've, all we've had is comfort and blessings. And we don't realize, hey, there's a whole lot of oppression going on between a group of rulers against the little man, so to speak. It's no different than what we could see in Scripture. And so we use these phrases in very similar terminology to understand this day of the Lord. All right, so what's the takeaway for us? I believe that when you look at the Scriptures, we have a picture again where God is going to pour out His wrath in that final day that we could read of in First Thessalonians chapter 5, or that you can read of similarly in Second Peter chapter 3, and when that wrath of God pours out, it is as if the world is coming to an end, except for this time, it is. It is as if you look at all these future events, and the one that's ahead of us is like, that's it. But there's one far distance above all others. That that really is it. And that's what we're seeing with this phrase, Day of the Lord, here in the New Testament. But there, again, there's that blurring of the line because for the Jews, their national identity is going to be destroyed in just a matter of, of years. When the temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem, I mean, the, it's been 2,000 years. They've never really recovered in the, in the same way that we could sense from Scripture, how God had intended for them in the days of David and Solomon. And so the phrase, day of the Lord, is in reference when it comes to that destruction, when it comes to his own people. And yet, while destruction was coming, he says, but there's going to be hope because I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to bring a blessing and pour out my blessings upon those who are pressed and belong to me because I'm going to bring you a day of salvation. Now, that said, reread 1 Thessalonians 5 one more time, this time with me, as Garland had read it for us earlier, and note the import of the passage. And maybe we'll see it in a different light than what we've always been reading it as for many of us that only think of that end time alone and not get the importance of the text. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Matthew 24. For when they say peace and safety, like Amos, chapter 5, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. Think back to Egypt and the, the, the ninth plague of darkness. It's not You're not of darkness. You're in the light. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But instead, let us be watchful and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, that, um, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's this picture on the other side of this great and terrifying day of the Lord. It is a day of hope for those who are asking, Lord, when are you going to come and bring salvation to us? And so He's giving hope. The Apostle Paul is to the church at Thessalonica. And says this, God did not appoint for us, verse 9, to wrath, but instead to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. And therefore, take comfort or comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. You see, the church has begun to be persecuted in a great way. And Peter even deals with it in 2 Peter chapter 3 as persecution is coming upon the people of God. He said there is going to be a day in which God's wrath will be coming out against those who exalt themselves up before him and make themselves out in, in some ways to be God themselves or gods. And he's going to bring wrath upon them but deliverance on this great And terrifying day to them for those who love him, those who follow after him, those who live like him. These oppressed are going to be saved. Your takeaway this morning is to reflect upon your walk. You see, for all the different ways you can apply this great and terrifying day, there is another great and terrifying day that you see. I'm trying to... There we go. Okay, I'm learning how to do this. (laughs) Um... There's going to be those that have a difficult time connecting those dots. Here's one I want you to think of. The old man of sin that you are told to destroy, right? You put him to death in baptism. It is the old man that is contrary to God who goes after idols, who actually exalts himself as God. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 3 when, when the tempter... Uh, Through the serpent says, hey, you guys want to be like God? Just take this fruit and you'll be just like God. That's the man you're destroying. When you're buried with Christ, you destroy that old man of sin that tries to exalt itself. And you humble yourself and you become a child of God whom God saves. It is a great day of the Lord, so to speak, that you've been added to his kingdom. Now, I share this lesson not just so that you get better at your Bible study, although I hope that you will, <laughs> in your Bible reading, so that a phrase that may seem one-sided and only alluding to one thing, you can see multiple application to it. I pray that you'll see the, the true message that is surrounding the phrase of the Lord, and that is trusting God with all your heart, strength, and might, follow after him. You will be persecuted as any child of God has been over time, over history. But every time, God has always seen you through by his great and mighty arm of salvation. That's what he gives to us even in this latter day that we're in. If you're not a child of God, you are part of those who exalt themselves against God. Who is God that I should obey him? Just like Pharaoh said. Or that you don't put your trust in him. Or maybe as a child of God, God's own people destroying his own people because the the powerful were putting down the oppressed. You need to think about your walk with the Lord. So if you're here and you're subject to him, I pray that you will come and turn to him. Give your life over to him. Humble yourself. He's going to save you from a day of wrath that's coming. It is going to be truly a day of the Lord. And if you need to return to him, by all means, put your trust in him so you can be saved from that coming day. Do that right now. It's together we stand and sing.